Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Contributing editor, National Review, and former federal prosecutor. I'm going to risk it. Andy McCarthy, welcome to the Dennis Prager Show. You be my friend anytime. Great to talk to you. <laughs> You're one of the people that I, I, on, I only seem to talk to when something is really bad. <laughs> it's really sad when I think about it. Yes, you and my wife, so that makes two. Oh, that's funny. Well, and one other. There's one other in that category. Your doctor. It's like whenever whenever my doctor says, how are you, I would say, I always answer, if I were fine, I wouldn't be talking to you. Yeah, yep, yep, that's right. If the world were fine, Andrew McCarthy and I would be going our separate ways. I have to laugh because things are so awful. My only alternative is to cry. You have an incredibly important piece up at National Review. Everybody has to read it. Folks, it is up at DennisPrager.com, and it just links to National Review. So there are so many horrible elements to what is happening this moment with regard to the U.S. negotiating beyond belief through a Russian mediator with Iran about striking a new deal on behalf of Iran and tens of billions of dollars going to Iran. Walk me through it. Yeah, this is just really awful. Uh, We know that Biden campaigned on reestablishing the uh, Obama-Biden administration's disastrous Iran nuclear deal uh, of 2015. And what he has cobbled together with the intercession of Russia, unbelievably, because uh, he's so desperate to get a deal, the Iranians won't talk to us, to our negotiators. Uh, so uh, in order to continue to negotiate, rather than tell them to go pound sand, we've got the Russians doing the uh, heavy lifting for us because the Iranians won't deign to meet with us. And they've put together, Dennis, this this agreement that I never thought I would ever be able to say this, certainly seven years ago, but this deal makes the first deal look good compared to what we're talking about here. That deal, as we we all recall, um, didn't stop Iran from getting nuclear weapons. It merely, it, it actually, if they just had followed the letter of the agreement, they would have had nuclear weapons within about 8 to to 13 years. So it only ever slowed them down. But it gave uh, tens of billions of dollars in sanctions relief to the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism without making a single arrangement or commitment that they would have to make about their terrorism activity. So the big complaint that we had about it back then was it looked like it looked at Iran as if, you know, its nuclear program was kind of compartmentalized in a box and we shouldn't consider it in the context of their terrorist activity and their uh, ballistic missiles activity and all the other evil that they do in the world. Flash forward now, the bad thing about the first agreement was that it ignored those things. What Biden proposes to do is actually give them sanctions relief for terrorism and ballistic missiles and all things that weren't involved in the original 
steal uh, in order to get them to sign off on something that not only isn't going to stop them from getting a nuclear weapon, it, it basically zooms them ahead toward it. Okay. How do you understand the motivation in, in the Obama case and in the Biden case? Since it's only bad for the world and America, what is their motivation? I think they believe, and I, I think uh, Obama was more of a, uh, a thinker on this than Biden. I think Biden just reflexively does anything that he thinks that Obama did, that Trump undid, he has to redo. I don't think he's a, a deep thinker on this. And I never thought that Obama was a particularly deep thinker, but I think he did have a theory on this. And it's, I find it a horrifying theory, but I want to at least give it its due. I think he think he thought that we needed to, for stability purposes, to rearrange the Middle East so that we had a rapprochement with Iran, uh, and that we put some distance between ourselves and Israel and between ourselves and the uh, and the Sunni uh, Islamic states. So that he would basically change the way that America was oriented toward the Middle East over the last 30 to 40 years. And he went about that with the idea that that would make for a more stable uh, Middle East. Before we go on with this deal, because you explained the last one, which was awful enough, done by Barack Obama, do you know, do you have an answer to this question? Is this being widely reported in in the mainstream media? I don't think so. I, well, I, I think that it's been reported that there have been negotiations ongoing in Vienna. Uh, I do not think that the outlines of the deal have been widely reported, and certainly the principal's role that Russia has played in negotiating it, I think, is going to be very surprising to people. Why can't this be stopped by Congress? Well, it, I mean, in theory, it could be stopped in Congress if you had the numbers to deny it funding. But, you know, I think the long-term, Dennis, that Congress took was in connection with the first deal, which should have been regarded as a treaty that needed two-thirds approval of Congress in order to uh, go into effect. Instead, Obama wouldn't regard it as a treaty. He called it a, an executive agreement. He didn't submit it to the, to the Senate as a treaty. And rather than fight him on that, uh, the Republicans agreed to this cockamamie, Bob Corker, Iran Agreement uh, Review Act of 2015, which essentially turned the treaty clause on its head and allowed the uh, agreement to, to go through, provided that there wasn't two-thirds opposition to it, which, of course, there, given the, the numbers in Congress, there wasn't. So, I, you know, I think that's, the, that's kind of the root of all evil here, or at least a lot of it. All right, so now tell me the outlines of the current deal. The current deal would put the... Uh, JCPOA, the, the original deal, into effect, um, which is ridiculous because the, the underlying conditions of the agreement are no longer in effect. Trump got us out of the agreement. Uh, he lodged uh, uh, additional 
sanctions against Iran. And in the meantime, Iran stopped following the agreement. So they've done a lot of uh, nuclear develop, uh, development, uh, which can't be unlearned or undone. Uh, so this is really a new agreement that Biden is trying to pretend is the old agreement. And the other thing this agreement does is it takes sanctions that were imposed for other evil activities of the Iranian regime, particularly terrorism and ballistics missile testing. Uh, and it forgives those sanctions in addition to the sanctions that were attached to the nuclear program. So, for example, Iranian actors who were involved in uh, atrocities like the bombing of the American Marine Barracks in Beirut in 1983, the bombing of the Kobar Towers in uh, Saudi Arabia, which housed a lot of our uh, Air Force personnel in 1996. Those, those sanctions would all be forgiven. The IRGC, the, uh, the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, which is basically the Iranian, the arm of the Iranian government that sponsors terrorism all over the world, they'd be taken off the terrorist list, um, and the sanctions against them would be removed. And this is all to get a deal that, is, again, is not going to stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. What, what do they claim is in it for the United States? I think, again, Dennis, that they are committed to this idea of reorienting uh, the American posture toward the Middle East in a way that is more favorable toward Iran and less favorable toward Israel and our traditional Sunni Arab allies, because they believe, uh, I think this is preposterous, but they believe that the world would be more stable that way. And what about the money aspect? The money aspect is probably, if you could rank the most troubling part of it, I suppose the money aspect um, is, is close to the idea of the Iranians with nuclear weapons because they would instantly get about $90 billion in sanctions relief because uh, funds would be unfrozen. They would then derive about what's estimated to be 50 to $55 billion annually in additional revenue uh, by being able to sell uh, oil and, you know, petro products. Uh, and there's also, it wouldn't be the Iran deal if there weren't a hostage, uh, you know, negotiation involved in it. So apparently we would also unfreeze about $7 billion of their assets that are being held by South Korea at the moment. And in exchange for that, there would be a release of uh, prisoners who are being held in Iran. I think it's four Americans and some Brits. So the United States, under the Democrats, is giving Iran about $150 billion immediately, God knows how, how much afterwards, by selling oil, to a regime that organizes death to America chants among its citizens, and which has vowed to exterminate another country, namely Israel. Is that a fair synopsis? And that is designated even by the, by the Biden State Department as the world's leading sponsor of terrorism, yes. Well, that's why you wrote this important piece. It is up, ladies and gentlemen, at DennisPrager.com. Andy McCarthy, I promise to call you when nothing bad is happening.
I'd like that, Dennis. That would be a that would be a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you for everything you do. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. That is a clip from a speech from Vladimir Putin. 16 years ago, a speech in which he said something he said more than once. The loss of the Soviet Union is the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the last century. Is that his motivation for what has been unfolding in Ukraine over the last two weeks? Let's discuss with a man who advised President Putin, who I recently saw on my colleague Sean Spicer's show on Newsmax. He is a former economic advisor to Russia's acting prime minister, Yegor Gaidar, chief economic advisor to Russian prime minister, Viktor Chernomyrin, and Chief Economic Advisor to Vladimir Putin, Dr. Andrei Ilarionov. Welcome to America First. Uh, Thank you very much, Sebastian, for inviting me. You are very, very welcome. You have an illustrious resume. I have three pages worth uh, of your qualifications in front of me. Uh, We do not have many people with your prior access inside the Kremlin speaking out on American media regarding the the events occurring in Ukraine. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, Will you walk us through, uh, our millions of listeners and viewers across the country, your background before you came to the United States, uh, your qualifications you've studied? studied in the UK, in Austria, at Stanford University. So may I ask you just to introduce yourself to our listeners? I'm an economist by uh, my training, and I spent most of my time as economist uh, and studying economic policy and advising on economic policy. You mentioned some of the uh, people whom I advised to. Uh, for uh, almost six years, I was economic advisor to uh, current uh, Russian president. And at that time, uh, Russia was able to uh, have a pretty remarkable economic growth that doubled GDP of the country and GDP per capita within 10 years. Uh, It was a little economic miracle for the Russian economy. But it was uh, everything in the past. Uh, Since uh, year 2008, three years after my departure, the Russian economy went into stagnation. And since then, uh, economic growth of Russia was not more than 1% per year on average. So instead of doubling uh, GDP within uh, 10 years, it's a kind of uh, 10% growth, so 7 to 8% per year, uh, a country was growing about 1%, less than 1% per year. Now, definitely, it's a, it's a crisis, um, and uh, the intentions of the Russian leadership, and first of all of Mr. Putin right now, is very opposite to what you have uh, demonstrated in your initial uh, slight uh, short uh, when Putin was talking about a little bit about democracy, freedom or whatever. It's definitely uh, wrong. It's uh, Putin does not pursue these goals anymore. His intentions are imperialistic. His intentions are conquering uh, the neighboring country, establishing a new new world order. And definitely, as he made it very clearly uh, over the last three months, his main goal is to establish sphere of influence in Europe according to the so-called 
1997 line, uh, 97, 1917 division line in Europe, which means all Eastern and Central Europe should come under his sphere of influence. Yeah, what what uh, the Kremlin calls the near abroad. Uh, we have read- even, even more, even more, because 1997, a line which means not only near abroad, it means not only Ukraine, Georgia, uh, not only Baltics, but also Poland, yes, uh, Slovakia, Hungary, uh, Bulgaria, Romania, and uh, in the document that Putin sent to the and um, uh, responded to the United States and NATO. In December, uh, January, and February, he was very clear. Clear. He mentioned all these countries uh, that should be demilitarized or denatoized. It means that uh, revoking their NATO membership and removal of all military um, equipment or whatever uh, forces uh, from NATO in those countries. So it's an attempt to reestablish the so-called Stalin line of 1945, after, right after the uh, Second World War. So Mr. Putin's ambitions uh, now is not only Ukraine. This is a, at least half of Europe, but because his appetite uh, is growing every day and every week. So we don't know yet what his final uh, goal. Actually, we know this goal. It will be growing. The, his appetite will be growing uh, every day and every week if he is not stopped. Uh, Dr. Ilarinov, you've worked at the highest levels in the Kremlin in the last few days. We've read all kinds of unsubstantiated reports about uh, he's taking drugs, he's taking steroids. I I see no reason to posit that given the fact that he's doing things that are predictable given his statements over the last 21 years. You've worked, you have advised this individual. Can you give us a sense of who Vladimir Putin is and explain why people People should not be surprised at the events of the last two weeks. He's a very calculated person. He's a very uh, persistent person. If he takes some particular goal, he's using all possible and impossible resources and all instruments and technologies and manipulations or whatever just to get this goal uh, be achieved. So that is why I would not buy any of this stuff about he became crazy, mad, he does not understand what's going on. No. All his actions, that we can see, they are absolutely devilous, but they are very persistent uh, in uh, achieving his goals. And uh, given that you advised him, uh, wh- how does he react to advice? Does he listen to others? There was, of course, much made in the last few decades that he had uh, He had Svengali's, he had uh, influences like Dugan advising him. Does he have his own plan or are there people that he relies upon who he listens to? I have not met any other person who was ready to listen to anyone. From any point, from, with any point of view, from uh, all political spectrum, if he considers that person is knowledgeable, professional, uh, is uh, if he considers that person as a, an expert, he listens very carefully, and he tries. At least it was in time when I was there, so he was trying to get as much as possible information for his purposes. So that is why for him there is no limits uh, whom he would be listening to who he would be talking to, if it helps him, he would listen to anyone. So that is why uh, just uh, he's probably the only person that I met in my life 
with such, such a wide approach that he could listen to very, uh, very far left, to very far right, to some kind of, to anyone, if it helped his case. And is that, what is the status given um, the uh, attacks on the imprisonment of Hodorkovsky and others? Is there any, we're seeing protests on the streets of Moscow and elsewhere, but is there a, a nascent opposition? Are there people who can stand up to his decisions? There are two retired generals who wrote opinion pieces in the last week saying that the president is wrong, which is an interesting sign. Can you give us a glimpse into the, the state of any potential resistance in Inside Russia to these policies? I would not very much rely on it. Just we need to understand, especially people in the West and the United States should understand or try to understand the situation in that uh, political regime. This is a uh, almost totalitarian regime. In totalitarian regime, you would not see very much, many protests. How many protests we could see in the Stalinist USSR? Anyone who would protest would be immediately put in jail in the best case or shoot uh, at the spot. How many resistance, I mean, just uh, the public demonstrations or meetings we would see in Nazi Germany? Just those people would be killed. In the best case, they would be sent into concentration camp. So that's exactly what's happening in uh, Russia right now. Those people who went to the streets protesting this war against Ukraine, uh, seven and a half thousand people have been arrested and now they are under the bar, behind the bars. So that yeah. is why uh, just ex- to expect that uh, these whatever mass protests could change uh, calculations of Putin or to change his policy, it is absolute, it's unsubstant, ab- non-substantiated uh, approach. It's, it will not happen. This is a totalitarian regime. Um, Dr. Ilarinov, as an economist, you are perhaps the best person to ask regarding the state of the Russian Federation's economy today. We have these sanctions that have been imposed, now Visa and MasterCard. Uh, we have an economy that is a fraction of what it was uh, under the time of, of the, uh, the Soviet regime. Can you give us an update, a snapshot of what the economy was like in recent years since you stopped advising the Kremlin, how fragile the ruble, how fragile the stock market was, and then your estimation of how sanctions are impacting Russia in the last uh, 13 days? Some sanctions that have been applied are uh, effective ones, especially uh, the sanctions to freeze assets of the central bank. This is probably the most important sanctions that has been applied. So if all countries around the world would follow the same policy, it would have probably the most uh, important impact, a more serious impact on the Russian economy and the decision-making process in Moscow. But it is only one step. There should be some other steps, including the uh, uh, isolation, financial isolation of all banking system uh, of Russia, with uh, cutting all financial ties with all banking system of Russia right now. And also, it is necessary to introduce a transportation uh, blockade uh, with cutting off all contacts, uh, all transportation contacts with Russia by air, by sea, by land. Uh, that's next uh, important step. But we need to understand that sanctions by themselves and all decisions which is absolutely necessary in terms of isolation Russia in uh, international organizations are not enough to stop this aggression. 
And, and uh, do, do any of these sanctions really matter if we don't sanction the gas and oil industry? Isn't that really the lifeblood for Putin? You're absolutely right, and that is why we were advocating from the very beginning there should be total embargo on all export and import uh, from and to Russia, and especially to all energy export and all transactions concerning gas and oil. This is a number one demand and requirement for anyone, especially here in the United States. Uh, it is really it's, it's, uh, unbelievable that the United States is not ready to apply those sanctions for uh, Russian uh, energy export. For uh, United States, uh, Russian energy is a tiny fraction of all energy that the United States is receiving. Europe is much far ahead is ready to cut fully from Russian gas. Even uh, Europe is by maybe 35 or even 40% dependent on the Russian gas, but they are ready because they understand this is war not only against Ukraine, this is war against Europe, this is war against NATO, against the United States, against the West, against the whole world. And that is why the number one priority for the whole world to stop aggressor right now, because without stopping him, he will go further. And it is, means not only thousands of people might be killed, but will be this count can go to millions. It is absolutely necessary to stop aggressor right now. Let's do Ukraine will be the last his attempt to ag- attack Europe or any other country. Can, can you give us your, your um, measure of how you think the sanctions against oligarchs and the billionaires uh, will develop. Will, will that put pressure on Putin, or do these people have their money already sheltered in Cyprus and elsewhere, and it, and it doesn't really matter? Will, 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 he, will he be pressured by these people, or does he have full control? No, that's exactly what Mr. Putin uh, see with great enjoyment and satisfaction, because that gives him uh, an opportunity to control those people with money. The uh, people with money, however you call them, businessmen, oligarchs, they have zero, once again, I repeat, zero impact on the decision-making process of Mr. Putin. So that is why the more sanctions will be applied to these people, it means those people will be under influence or himself if they are in Russia, or they will be outside of Russia. But it will not make any changes in Putin's decision-making process. People here in the United States and the West still do not understand the logic and nature of this political regime. This is a totalitarian regime. Just what kind of impact those people could have on Putin? Anyone could have impact on Stalin? Could anyone have impact on Hitler when they are already in war? I'd like to just remind people here that uh, after the attack on Finland in 1939, when Stalin started this uh, Soviet-Finnish war, or Winter War, which is known in Finland, the Soviet Union has been expelled is from the League of Nations. Yes. So, whether it stopped Stalin from continuation of this war? No. He continued this war for 100 days. Whether it stopped uh, Stalin uh, from attack on Baltic countries and occupy occupation of all Baltic countries? No. Whether it stopped Stalin from occupation of Bessarabia and Northern Bukovina? No. So 
the sanctions now with the sanctions moment or expelling from the international organization but i think it's absolutely necessary for example to expel russia from the security council of united nations right now so even those absolutely necessary measures would not stop tanks rolling on the ukrainian land so that is why it is necessary to think about hardware policies or how hardware response to hardware attack from the Russian side. Dr. Ilyarinov, can you help our listeners get inside the, the mindset of the average Russian in terms of the information that they are allowed to consume? Um, this narrative coming out of the Kremlin that um, this is a peacekeeping operation. It is a humanitarian operation in Ukraine. It's there to save ethnic Russians from genocidal uh, ethnic cleansing by the government in Kiev that is a fascist Nazi government. Can you explain how, how information is controlled and how this narrative is hard to undermine within Russia? Probably it would be very hard to explain to the uh, Western audience uh, because those people completely isolated from uh, other information, from information uh, abroad. And all last remnants of uh, relatively free or semi-free media have been closed over the last uh, 10 days. Uh, there is no uh, foreign uh, source of information within Russia. All those uh, media outlets that could be considered either opposition or semi-opposition have been closed down. There is no possibility to uh, even uh, social networks like a, uh, like YouTube, like Twitter, like Facebook, like uh, LiveJournal.com, essentially uh, either closed completely or uh, substantially closed down by the Russian authorities. So that is why I would say 80 to 85 percent of the Russian population are completely brainwashed they do not have access to any other information and they have a very very put it put it uh, mildly uh very strange view about the rest of the world and about a state of own country unfortunately we cannot rely on support from russian in, uh, from the inside of russia we have maybe 15 percent of russian population who have reasonably good understanding what's going on but they are minority and they are under attack from the uh, Russian security services, uh, from Kremlin. Some of them already behind bars, some of them might be behind the bars. So unfortunately, this is a situation of the, uh, that we could see in history in totalitarian regimes like Nazi Germany, Stalinist USSR, or Northern Korea right now. This is a very similar now, very close to, these, uh, to the situation of totalitarian regimes. And, and how powerful is, is the the historic desire amongst the 85% who don't access information or, or question the official state narrative. How powerful is this desire to have a strong man in Moscow? And how strong is this belief that Russia is surrounded, the Rodina is surrounded, and the West is about to attack? Is this truly the universal appreciation amongst most, uh, most citizens in Russia? No, I would not say so. Certainly, we don't have the exact sociological data because in totalitarian, semi-totalitarian regimes, we could not get any reasonable sociological data. Yeah. But I would say maybe 30, 35 or 40 percent would uh, subscribe to this particular view. But majority uh, of people in Russia right now are incredibly fearful. 
they are fearful of everything, and especially they are fearful of own regime, because that regime can destroy everything, can destroy their livelihood. They cannot uh, arrest people on the streets. Just we saw uh, just a few days ago, we saw that people on uh, walking through the Nevsky Prospect on in Saint Petersburg, uh, police coming to those people and asking, "What is your view about uh, uh, situation in Ukraine?" The person responds, "Lady responds, okay, I'm against the war." Okay, you're arrested, and they take him that person and bring him uh, behind the bar. So that just once again, uh, people outside of Russia do not have clear understanding, do not have full understanding what a kind of nightmare uh, regime is in Russia, and that regime can do virtually everything, uh, both within the country and now they doing the outrageous crime in uh, Ukraine after. And at the same time, against Georgia, against Moldova, in Syria, in many other places. Um, Professor, give us your your likely um, expectations for how this could develop. If if we get serious on sanctions, as you said, not just against the general Russian populace, but against uh, state assets and so forth in the central bank, uh, what? Let me put it other way. Um, what would make Putin stop? We have reports, unverified, that the military is not performing well, that numerous uh, helicopters were downed at the weekend by Ukrainian uh, forces. Nevertheless, the Russian armed forces greatly, greatly outnumber the Ukrainians. Um, A siege mentality is hard to break if you are fighting for your homeland. What are the things that will provide a pause for thought in the mind of Vladimir Putin? Uh, several steps. First, uh, establishing of land-lease arrangement for Ukraine, supplying uh, Ukraine with all munitions and military equipment, uh, which uh, what is necessary, just right away, not waiting for, uh, just waiting for payment from the Ukrainian side. So, so exactly uh, as the United States uh, did for Britain during World War Two. Correct. Exactly. Exactly the same arrangement. So. Uh, uh, closing uh, uh, sky uh, where at least Western Ukraine, uh, Western Ukraine, uh, right bank Ukraine, uh, establishing no fly zone for that particular territory within within NATO forces, providing anti air equipment to Ukrainians, uh, giving the green light and giving the uh, jets uh, to Ukrainians who are ready to fight uh, Russians by themselves. Just, but please give them jets. Uh, this permission is still not being uh, given to uh, Poland, Bulgaria, Slovakia, all other countries that are ready to do it. Uh, deployment of some uh, uh, troops from a coalition of the willing countries into the Western Ukraine to secure humanitarian controls uh, in the Western Ukraine, securing the uh, convoys with munitions for Ukraine. It is also a very substantial deterrent uh, to Belarusian dictator Lukashenko from uh, participating in aggression in, against Ukraine. For Polish, uh, Lithuanian and Lithuanian troops, I think it's time to concentrate on the Belarusian border and to issue warning to Belarusian dictator if uh, Belarusian land will be used against Ukraine uh, for aggression, either for land uh, aggression or attacks by air. That will be very serious repercussions for uh, Lukashenko himself. 
Once again, it is necessary to understand this is a not Ukrainian war. This is a European war. And Mr. Putin clearly said, and now the secret documents that have been captured by the Ukrainian military have shown it very, very clear. This is only first stage, only first step of the full-scale European war. Mr. Putin should stop right now. And that is why all countries, all good willing countries need to help and need to support and need to defend Ukraine with all possible resources. It is necessary also to provide channels, channels for uh, volunteers from all countries to go to Ukraine and to fight for Ukraine and defend Ukraine. It is necessary to open a criminal case against Mr. Putin in the Hague, uh, Hague Criminal Court. Um, it is necessary to start process of uh, um, expelling uh, Putin's Russia from the Security Council of the United Nations. It is necessary to establish full embargo on all uh, trade with Russia and especially for energy. This is the only very first step that it's necessary to do it right now. Uh, that's a fabulous list. I, I hope you've written an article to that effect, which I would love to repost on all my social media platforms. I especially like the idea of a, a modern 21st century lend lease because it's been done before now. It can be done with the Ukrainian uh, government. However, I must ask you to address the concerns from many here in Washington, D.C., that a Western guaranteed or a no-fly zone, even over a partial a part of uh, the Ukrainian airspace, would clearly be seen as an act of war uh, by Russia, by Putin, and it would have to be policed by NATO jets. So NATO jets would have to potentially shoot down Russian jets. At that point, are you not worried in an escalation that could potentially lead to all-out war between NATO and Russia? No, and I give you three examples, historic examples that happened just, uh, uh, just uh, in front of our eyes. In year 2008, uh, uh, during the Russian-Georgian war, when uh, during the attack on uh, aggression against Georgia, President of the United States, George Bush, has sent a uh, uh, fleet, now six fleet uh, from Mediterranean to the Black Sea, and he started to relocate uh, U.S. Air Force to Romania and to Turkey uh, with very clear intentions. Six hours after those uh, movements have been detected by the Russian general staff. Uh, President Medvedev has announced that operation uh, uh, against Georgia has been stopped. Second point, in year 2015, uh, Russian bomber violated Turkish airspace for 40 seconds. Turkish jet shot down uh, the Russian bomber, killing both pilots uh, of that bomber. After that, what was the reaction? What was the response of Mr. Putin? Nothing. Just nothing. Nothing at all. There is no reaction. And Russian bombers, after that, never violated Turkish airspace. Third example, year 2018, when the uh, Russian private company Wagner, with the Russian, uh, Russian soldiers, 200 people, went in uh, Syria trying to get a uh, gas plant. And after that, Central Command of the United States uh, uh, sent uh, planes uh, to that area and fully destroyed this group, 200 people. How many times Mr. Putin mentioned this case in any of his statements and writings or whatever? 
The yeah. answer is zero. Zero. Yeah, that's the Trump. Let me just zero. remind everybody that's the Trump administration targeted 200 Russian mercenaries in Syria and there was no uh, reaction. Perfectly done. Thank you, uh, Dr. Ilarionov. Um, I, I could continue this discussion for a very long time. I hope we can invite you again, Dr. Ilarionov. Um, I, 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 have, I want to recruit you to help me answer a, an accusation that sadly is coming from some conservatives with regards to the war we are witnessing. And they're saying it's our fault. It's the West's fault by allowing NATO to expand to the Baltic states, to Hungary, uh, by considering EU membership for the Ukraine. We provoked this war. Would you please address this, Canard? This is a completely falsified accusations. Each country, each nation, each society has a right to live in peace and choose its own way of development. Ukrainians have chosen a Western way. They would like to be with the Western nations. They would like to be members, parts of Western community of nations, means free, democratic, uh, based on rule of law. They made it clear many times through their 30 years of independence. That's their choice. That's a choice of 40 million nations. So it's, uh, it was NATO that was uh, not some kind of ready to accept uh, membership for NATO membership for Ukraine. If United States with uh, other allies would accept Ukraine into NATO, that war would not happen. It is absolutely clear. Yeah. Uh, Putin did not attack any NATO countries. Not only Putin, Stalin did not attack n- n- no uh, uh, NATO countries. Soviet Union did not touch any NATO countries. NATO membership is the best guarantee for peace uh, in Europe and around the world. So that is why if somebody wants to stop the war and to make more peace, just give NATO membership to Ukraine. And that would be guarantee that hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of people will not be killed by Russian aggressor. Last question. What is it the West doesn't understand about Putin that they need to know, Professor? Don't trust Putin at all. Don't make deals with Putin at all. And you need to understand there is no, cannot be peace and there cannot be any negotiations, cannot be any agreement with Mr. Putin. The only guarantee for the peace in Europe and the world that would be deputinization of Russia. Not only uh, armistice, but it should be deputinization of Russia. Because as long as Mr. Putin is the head of Russia, the whole world is under threat yeah. of attack, including nuclear attack against the world. When you have a, uh, a killer, a thug in charge of a nuclear-tipped nation, the world is in danger. That was fabulous. Thank you, Professor. Thank you. We have been talking to former presidential and prime ministerial advisor to the uh, Russian government, Dr.